You can be turning to the book of Galatians this morning. If you have a pew Bible or want to use a pew Bible, it is page uh, 1396. But you won't see the 1396. You will see the 1397, though, on the opposite side. Sometime last year, I believe, um, I put out a filler. I had listed a few ideas I had in the way of sermon series ideas, and I did a brief poll for some folks in the church, and this book came back as the winner, Galatians. And I'm glad. Uh, Do you ever need a spiritual wake-up? Do you ever need a good slap to the face? Uh, Right after I I got married in 2012, uh, moved to Moscow, and, and took this primary job of driving around filling Pepsi, at various grocery stores, and I had a lot of commute time, and so I I started listening to a pastor that felt like that every sermon I listened to, just a good slap on the face. (laughs) I felt like God uh, used him to shake me out of any complacency I may have had that basically just told me, hey, this faith stuff that you profess is real. God is big, his mission is glorious, and his word is authoritative. And Paul's tone in Galatians, I feel, is like that. We went through the book of James a few years ago, and when we went through that, I called that the book of ouch. (laughs) And this is Paul's book of ouch. And you're like, why did I show up today? But his message is urgent. His audience was headed down, if not already was down, a bit of a horrific road. They didn't have... The gospel figured out right. And if you don't ever have the gospel fully figured out right, I believe usually the reason lies within a lack of respect, understanding, adoration, admiration, devotion, worship, and exaltation of Jesus. That's the problem. That's the problem. So we come out of the gate this morning in Galatians looking At our only hope. So please stand if you're able and let's read Galatians 1, 1 through 5 this morning. Now a lot of it's going to sound superficial and you're going to be tempted to say, doesn't Paul start all of his letters like this? Do we really need to mull it over in your usual fashion, Kevin? Yes, we do. God doesn't waste ink. Uh, Galatians 1, uh, beginning with verse 1, says, Paul... An apostle sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory Forever and ever. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul and his faithfulness to you, to be used by you, to be yielded to you and your spirit. Holy Spirit, we thank you for this letter to the Galatians. We know it is still applicable today. We ask that you would be using these words to encourage us, to impassion us, to be faithful to you, to be faithful to your truth. Help us, Father, to preach 
a pure gospel, not a gospel um, that's deceptive or that's corrupted, uh, but the gospel as you delivered it. Uh, Help me, Holy Spirit, to say what it is you desire by getting me out of the way. We ask that all of us would have open ears, hearts, minds to receive your word and apply its truths. Thank you again, Lord Jesus, for your death and resurrection. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I promise I didn't have a Red Bull. I'm just fired up about this sermon. So, sorry. Um, The sooner you and I understand that God has something for us to be doing, more than just generally as a church, more than just generally as his disciples, but personally, because he made us, the better our lives will be. The quicker our lives will make sense. Let me say that again. The sooner you and I realize that God has something for us to be doing more than just generally as a church, more than just generally as his disciples, but personally, because he made us, the better our lives will be and the quicker our lives will make sense. Now, I've run into people, and this is kind of a new thing for me. I'm only 34, so this could be why. But I grew up in the church, and I've run into the people who who push back against this idea of me, witness to people. Yes, this is debated by Christians in the church. And they'll argue things like, well, the Bible says that not everyone is an evangelist. And who did Jesus make Kevin to be Uh, stop telling me who Jesus made Paul or or Peter to be and then tell me to feel convicted if I'm not imitating them. Who did Jesus make me to be? And I get that a a little bit, but I also get the Great Commission. I also get if anyone. That means anyone in the Greek, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself himself. And take up his cross and follow me for whoever that means whoever in the Greek wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. And I could be naive and I may not know the whole picture, but I wonder if sometimes in our attempts to discover who God made me to be with balking and pushing back against sold out calls to discipleship, I wonder if these are the responses of people who maybe want to save their lives. That there is now there is this medium. I get that you or I may never crisscross the Mediterranean like Paul and plant churches. But I also believe God did not call you or me to spend however many years we do have analyzing our navels. And coming up with excuses as to why our schedules and our wallets are not filled up with ways of advancing his kingdom for his kingdom purposes. Paul had a divine commission. He starts this letter, Paul. Yes, people still find a way to debate it. Did Paul write the letter? Why? I don't know. I guess someone somewhere wanted a Ph.D., And the best way to do that was to just come up with a new theory, trying to argue in favor of Paul not writing this letter. That had to have been a daunting task. 
The letter is filled with his first name. Secondly, he uses much similar language and theology to the rest of his letters. Thirdly, it's a letter that has most of his biography and matches up his biography with what Luke said about him in Acts. So this is Saul of Tarsus, a one-time persecutor of Christians, and he writes that he is an apostle sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. Paul had a divine commission. We're going to find that Paul is on the defense in his letter. He's on the offense as far as what the gospel is, but he's on the defense on who he is. Because Paul is arguing against a tainted uh, picture of the gospel. It's a destructive, dangerous, and downright perverse picture of the gospel that has sadly and deceptively continues to persist, maybe in subdued manners, but in our day, age, and even cultural church. We'll talk about that in the coming weeks. But in order for this gross gospel to flourish, proponents of these lies had to badmouth Paul. They had to bring up his past. They had to bring up any black marks they could find on the man. Thus, Paul is not only having to contend earnestly for the faith and trusted once for all to the saints, to quote Jude, but he's also having to defend his own position. First, he says he's an apostle. Uh, Strong's would say that the Greek implies a messenger, envoy, delegate, one commissioned by another to represent him in some way. So who is Paul a messenger of? Paul states he's not sent, not from men, nor by man. So he's not sent from a group or a body of believers, per se. But furthermore, he's just not sent by man, not by the whole race of mankind. No, instead, he's sent by Jesus Christ and God the Father. Paul has a divine commission. He's sent by the Messiah, the Savior of mankind, and by the only God who has ever existed eternally. He is an apostle of the divine being, the supreme being, the sovereign of the universe. We know the story of Paul, nevertheless. It's a good story to recount. Paul would tell us, or excuse me, Luke would tell us in Acts 9, that while Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord, he approached the high priest and requested letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women belonging to the way, he could bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. This was Saul's life. I want us to to think about that for a moment, to let... Who Saul was sink in. Paul would later state in Acts 26 verse 11. He says I frequently. Had them punished in synagogues. And I tried to make them blaspheme. In my raging fury against them. I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. Luke says here back in Acts 9 1. That he's breathing murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord. One of my commentators said poetically, the very breath of Saul's life was hot with anger against the believers. Saul was a known enemy to Christians. 
You see that later in Acts 9 with Ananias having an attempted debate with God. Do you really want me to go help out the Christian hater? (laughs) Make no mistake, Saul was feared. Not unlike ISIS being feared. Saul wasn't nominally against Christians with legislation. He had no qualms about Christians being ultimately executed. And may have in fact been guilty with the blood of some directly. So in Acts chapter 9, Saul is walking with intent to take back any believers from Damascus. This is about 135 miles north of Jerusalem. Saul didn't have a Tesla in that day. And he wants to have them tried in Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem, there's already been this persecution going on. So I think Saul is hoping that a certain outcome might happen. Verse 3 As Saul drew near to Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, he replied. Now, the BFB would footnote that there are some other words. If you have a King James or New King James, you would see those words. But both the manuscripts, the BSB and the King James are based off of, have those same words in Acts uh, 26.14. But verse 6 would say, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And you know the story. He goes there. Ananias hears that Paul is called. Paul is called to suffer for the sake of the gospel. But Paul is called. As he says back in Galatians 1, he's called by Jesus Christ and he's called by God. And my point is, friends, you are called. Not like Paul, Kevin. I get that. (laughs) Nevertheless, you are called. If you are saved, not only did you come to Christ, put your faith in him because you thought it was a good idea. You have been called. We see this interplay in places like John 6. Jesus says, I, excuse me, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. We're going to skip verse 36 for our purposes. We see verse 37. Everyone the father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For it is my father's will that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Wonder if you caught the interplay, though, whoever comes to me, everyone who looks to the son and believes we, we we hear this general calling, this general Searching this general universal invitation to everyone and whoever. But we also hear this unique calling, this ownership that just as Paul states, it was Jesus Christ and God, the father who called him. So Jesus says about those who come to him, he says, everyone, the father gives to me. They're owned by the father. I have come to do the will of him who sent me. I shall never lose those he has given me. Who are the ones Father has given to Jesus? Everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him. 
Paul was called by Jesus Christ. He was called by the Father. If you put your faith in Jesus, you too have been called by the Father. What were you called for? Paul would write the Romans, and in fact, some argue that he could have been writing in Romans and Galatians at the same time. But Paul writes in Romans 8, 29 and 30, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. See, some just have this feeling that when they come to Christ, when they answer the call, they're just to be justified. And that's it. They're just to be declared righteous before God. I put my I've sinned. I put my faith in Jesus. And when God asks me for an account of my life and why I've sinned, so I'm going to say, talk to Jesus. He's handled it. But according to Paul here, God might have more in store for than you than just being justified. He has more in store. He has plans to conform you to the image of his son, Jesus. Do you look like Jesus yet? I don't. I'm a little bit more pudgy than he was. (laughs) Will God say to the sinner who declares the blood of Jesus? Okay, I look to Jesus for an account of your sins, but I'm wondering, why don't you look like Jesus? That was the plan. Paul was called out by Jesus and God the Father. He answered that call. Are you answering the call? This sort of question hurts me, at least. It's daunting. Makes me want to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. And just how we look to Christ in our inadequacy of being saved. So Paul urges his readers to look to Christ to fulfill our calling. No doubt Paul used to be Christian killer. Paul had feelings of inadequacies. So after Paul talks about his divine commission, he looks to Christ's divine mission. In the second half of verse 1, we read Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. I don't know if you know this, but this is a very controversial profession. In fact, It's what our gospel is built upon, and it's what the world denies and rejects Christianity upon. That Jesus is raised from the dead by God the Father. At the center of the gospel lies a dead man who rose again. And this is a line of demarcation in the Christian understanding of God. And I believe in considering the rest of the book of Galatians, there is a definite intentional reason Of Paul's wording here, that Christ died and he rose, not just for a very big reason, but for the reason of our faith. It's what we rest our hat on. It's what Paul is going to rest his whole argument here for the gospel. It is only Jesus who is our only hope. You are justified because of Jesus' death and resurrection. You will be conformed to the image of Christ because of his death and resurrection. You will be glorified because of his death and resurrection. Nothing else will suffice. There are no other means of grace or merit that will ever be, should ever be, can ever be sufficient. It is only Jesus who died and rose again. It's only Jesus. And Paul will die on this hill. 
You should die on this hill. Don't let anyone rob the glory from Jesus. And what Paul is doing in the opening of his letter by stating he is an apostle of God or an apostle of the resurrected Lord Jesus. He's saying, if you have any problem with what I'm about to tell you, see that guy. He sent me. God sent me. I'm an apostle of God. I'm a messenger. That's another word for apostle. Don't shoot the messenger. Go see the one who sent the messenger. That's what Paul's saying. Because of Jesus' divine mission, Paul is divinely commissioned. Well, who's Paul writing to? That's the million-dollar question. We look to Paul's friends and his recipients in verse 2 here. He says, and all the brothers with me, which is actually kind of rare for Paul in his letters. Usually he's going to name them. But likely, as we note in Galatians 6.11, Paul is the primary author of this letter as opposed to a secretary, which was common in those days. To have, It seems, it could be, that Paul didn't have someone around him to write this letter. So it, it could be that Paul felt the need and urgency for the hearers to realize, hey, Paul's so serious about this, he sat this down and wrote it himself. But by this phrase, Paul is adding more credibility and support to say, I align myself with the brothers. As in, go see some other Christians, they'll tell you that I'm in alignment with them as far as the points of this letter. Paul's established that he was divinely commissioned, but he's also stating he's been received and supported by the brothers, the Christians, the disciples. And he's writing to the churches of Galatia. As the end of verse two states, Galatia was a central province in the region of what the Romans called Asia, that is modern day Turkey. It's documented in Acts, which is a series we just came out of, that Paul had been going through the southern southern parts of Galatia. Acts 13 and 14 tells us that some of the cities, Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, if you need some more names for kids. These are all cities that Paul and Barnabas hit in his second missionary journey. However, apparently saying you were Galatian is a lot like saying you were Floridian. If you go to Florida, especially around the more touristy areas and ask them, so are you a Floridian? What will they say? Well, I'm originally from and uh, name some other city and state. While other Floridians are Floridians in the tourist sense, homegrown. This was their home. The more Galatian Galatians, the actual race of Galatians, were more up in the northern area. These southern Galatians were citizens of Galatian cities, but probably from somewhere else usually. So there is this debate because we have nothing better to do in seminary. Who is Paul writing to? Some will say, well, Acts only records clearly that Paul went to these southern cities, so he's likely writing to those southern churches. Others like to point out to other verses I put in your outline, but they're rather unclear. But they could make room to say that Paul maybe went farther north and he could be writing to those Galatians. Furthermore, we don't know the time. There is this debate as to when Paul wrote this. Two views worth mentioning is did Paul write this before the Jerusalem council? Chapter 15 of Acts, where the church had this big council to really talk a lot about this stuff this book is talking about. And it seems very immediately related. The fact that 
This book of Galatians doesn't really refer to the council's decisions or happenings. Make many believe that this was written before the council. Now, one of my study notes says, sure, it's an argument from silence, but could it be a deafening silence? Still others say, what are you talking about, Kevin? Look at Galatians chapter 2. In fact, the BSB, our Bible, takes liberties with subtitle headings. And if you don't know, the subtitle headings in your Bible were not written by the original authors. They're just there from your translators for a quick reference. But the BSB says in Galatians 2, the council at Jerusalem. And they do some cross references with Acts 15, especially if you look at verse one, which says, Paul says, 14 years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, accompanied by Barnabas. I took Titus along also. Acts 15:2 tells us that Paul and Barnabas went up to Jerusalem, accompanied by some other unnamed believers. Titus could have been one of those people. Paul says back here in Galatians 2:2, I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I spoke privately to those recognized as leaders for fear that I was already running or had already run in vain. So some say, well, this sounds a lot like the Jerusalem council. Paul's going. He says he's worried that all of his preaching would be in vain. He could think that if the council ruled against uh, of how Paul preached it. Others will say this could be another occasion besides the council, because, again, it seems so odd that Paul would admit what the council decided in his letter to the Galatians, what the church universal declared. It would seem so relevant to the whole letter to to even begin talking about the council. You would think it would at least jog Paul's memory. Oh, and about that council, here's what they said. Uh, but Paul doesn't do that. So. Some say, well, if the letter already went out there, Paul thinks he may not need to add any more to it. So you can see there's some debate. We're not going to take up too much time. Just know that that letter is debated as to when it was written before or after the council addressing churches that Paul had been into southern Galatia. Or is it the churches who are in north Galatia? We don't know. I'm sure we might revisit these questions throughout this series. But if Paul is writing this after the council, but is failing to mention more directly its findings, it could be because more than church council findings, not to dismiss them, but perhaps Paul finds the gospel more persuasive and transforming hearts and minds into its truth. We pick it up in verse three, grace and peace to you from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. For the people trapped in the thinking that the Galatians were, a full understanding of grace and peace are needed. In fact, when we continue next week, it is grace, Paul says, that they are deserting. Paul would say, I am amazed how quickly you are deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. In fact, he would accuse them in Galatians 5, 4. They have fallen away from grace. Grace is this idea of goodwill or loving kindness or favor. You know, uh, music is a good way to remember theology. And I listen to this very, you know, traditional orchestra band called Newsboys. Maybe they're not. <laughs> but one of their songs once uh, said, when you get what you don't deserve. It's a real good thing. It's grace. 
You and I are saved by God's grace, by his loving kindness, by his being good to us, his being kind. See, this is a gift on steroids. This is when you don't expect it, but a friend of yours meets up with you and has coffee in hand for you. Thanks, I didn't expect that. (laughs) This is when out of the blue, your spouse brings a gift for you. I I thought you went to the store. What's with the bouquet of flowers? What's with chocolates? You didn't pay for the coffee. You didn't ask for the coffee. You didn't ask or pay or expect the flowers. And in many cases, you didn't deserve these things. Or even if we thought we did, we're never going to outright say it's about time. (laughs) Or I deserve that. No, we're usually overwhelmed with gratitude. The God of the universe became flesh for us. For us. Wrap your minds around that. If you've been a Christian for many years like I have, I think sometimes we get so acclimated to Christian talk that sometimes what's good is to fully grasp and and feel the weight of all the ideas that we're saying. The God of the universe became flesh. Spend the next 80 years grasping that truth. (laughs) Then he became flesh for the sole purpose of dying for you and for me. The Sunday that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, triumphal entry, and he surveys Jerusalem, knowing that it's his final week, his hour is upon him. He says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it is for this purpose that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Do You hear those words for this purpose. That I have come to this hour. His purpose is to save. His purpose in those memorable verses of John three sixteen says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that everyone who believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And I was just thinking about this in relation to the issue in Galatians, this word world. Now, John uses this word world throughout his gospel cosmos thematically as if the whole order that's anti-Jesus, the world hated me, it'll hate you and so forth. But also, let's not overlook how some Jews may have read John's gospel that the world, as in there's Israel, God's chosen people, but then there's the world. And God loved the world. His mission was to save the world, not to condemn it. He comes with grace and peace. That's the second part of verse 3 here. Grace and peace. And in conjunction with verse 4, the peace that Paul is talking about here is like the sort of peace that is declared after a war. The war between God and man is ended, ended by the conquest of Christ on the cross. And it gives God's hostiles peace. And this grace and peace from Christ, from God the Father, gets to the very nature of who he is. The Galatians and people like the Galatians have a very serious misunderstanding about the nature and the character of the God they believe they are pleasing. God, or excuse me, Paul would say this. Who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will 
of our God and Father. You know, I'm sorry if I'm missing some background here. I've been assuming most of this sermon, but I guess I haven't been forthcoming about uh, a few things because I didn't want to steal any future sermons thunder. But Paul is basically arguing against legalism in the book. He'll be arguing about what's called Judaizing in the book. The idea that the gospel is actually this. You need to accept Jesus and you need to become a little more Jewish. Whether that means be circumcised or be, uh, by symbolic and logical continuation, keep these feast days. You know, it's just Jesus plus something else. Paul would say in a very humble Christian sort of way. <laughs> no, no. The Galatians, the people who think like this are wrong from a very fundamental basic place. They don't understand the very nature of God. He's a God who brings grace and peace. He is a, a God who became flesh for us and gave himself for our sins to rescue us. So now, is God so weak and powerless that even when he becomes flesh and dies for us, that he would then state, holy cow, you guys are so horrible. My son was just not enough. Now keep those feast days, get circumcised, do this other stuff, and maybe we'll be on talking terms. That's horrible theology. That's ludicrous. And some will take it further and say, you don't understand me. I'm not saying Christ is not enough. I'm saying that salvation is accomplished a different route than what you state it's accomplished by, period. Salvation is accomplished by how the Torah set it out to be. Keep his covenant, he'll keep his. Then you miss the point of Christ's coming. <laughs> That's the point that Paul is going to make later in the book. For now, Christ gave himself for our sins. That's the being saved part. That's the salvation part. Salvation from our sins. To rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Present evil age. You know, the psalmists note that the world is God's. Psalm 24 one says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell therein. What does he mean by that? God owns everything. Psalm 103.19, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. I wonder if God rules over all. Psalm 145.13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. And even though God owns, rules, reigns and has dominion over all the earth and all the generations, the very fact that God must become man and die for the sins of the world tells us that sinners are in rebellion. Paul would write to the Ephesians that there is a ruler of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And just as God sent Moses to liberate the Israelites from the tyrannical ruler Pharaoh, so God sends Jesus to liberate all people from the ruler of the power of the air from the present evil age. Paul elevates this gospel, this gospel of Jesus dying for our sins, rescuing people as the will of God. <laughs> That's a direct challenge to the Judaizers who think they have the cornerstone on God's will. 
Well, we know Torah. We know what needs to be done for folks to be saved. And Paul says, no, this is the will of God, of our God and father. And it's language like Isaiah 53:10, which says, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer a, a poem in which talks about the suffering servant being crushed for our iniquities and by whose stripes we are healed. Further verifying that this suffering servant is Jesus Christ and it is only him who saves us. Why is this so important? Why does Paul want the Galatians to get this? To get that Jesus Christ crucified for our sins, raised for our hope, is the only hope. God's glory. That's why it's so important. God's glory. That's the last point in verse 5. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Please don't miss this. Don't chalk this up to, yep, another Christianese phrase sounds a lot like the announcer at the airport calling people to flights I don't care about. No. (laughs) This is what grinds my gears. First of all, because I have a subtle propensity to do this, so I see it well in other people. But what grinds my gears is Judaizers and false teachers and people who believe in and preach false, jacked up, Jesus plus, if not Jesus who, Gospels is the antithesis of this right here because they're smug. (laughs) They're smug. Well, I got it all figured out. I'm truly righteous. You've missed the boat. I got the inside track. Ain't I something special? And Paul is coming out of the gate with God's gospel is a gospel that says you and I were too horrible to ever work ourselves to God. So he worked himself to us. So, yeah, we're special in that sort of way, but not special because our will, but the will of he who sent Jesus to save us in the first place. Therefore, he deserves glory to God. Be the glory. We should sing a song about that. It's not about, well, I figured it out. I cracked the code. I did the law. I'm keeping more law than you keep. You eat bacon. You think Sunday's special and not the Sabbath. You aren't circumcised. You're not more Jewish like I am. And listen to you. It's all about what you're doing. Huh? You don't eat bacon. You're keeping more law. You, you, you. And Paul is saying, you missed the boat. (laughs) You don't get it. It's not about you. The gospel isn't overwhelmingly breathtaking and climactically astounding because a mirror lies at the heart of the gospel. No. God is glorious. God is overwhelmingly awe-striking. God is a, a marvel and a wonder to behold. The gospel is God becoming flesh. The gospel is God dying for man and rising again. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, um, this sort of bad gospel theology is so subtle sometimes. It's almost like because an enemy wants to trip us up. Help us to rely and to rest completely in you and what you have done for us. As Paul is going to correct any objections or misunderstandings, this sort of gospel isn't so we can go out and sin and do whatever we want because we're saved by grace. No, but if we truly believe in what you're giving us, 
Um, Our belief will change our actions. We'll be acting out of gratitude towards you and living a life you want us to live. But help us in the meantime to never think that you're keeping a record of all of our rights and wrongs and you're waiting to send us to hell. Father, you paid the price through Jesus Christ. Uh, We are saved by grace through faith. Thank you for this truth. We ask that you would apply it to our hearts and lives and that we would rest in that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.